0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. All right, uh, my name is Marcus, and I am one of the pastors here at City Church. And if you have your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Matthew 1. Matthew 1. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some Bibles in front of you underneath the seat. But if you're on the front row, all you have is me. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, So we've been in a series for a few weeks now on the Christmas story, and and we've been jumping back and forth between the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, looking at the Christmas story from a number of different angles. And really, we've been finding out that that there's more going on with the Christmas story than probably what we used to remember as kids. And this week, we're actually going to spend some time looking at Joseph, who is Jesus' dad or stepdad, or adoptive dad. He's definitely one of them. But anywho, we're going to look at what happens when Joseph receives the somewhat life-altering news that his wife-to-be is pregnant with Jesus. But before we do all of that, I usually start off my sermons like this. Uh, I just want to say, guys, if you feel like the Spirit is moving in you, if you feel like uh, the Spirit is saying, hey, what this dude said up here is truth, If you feel like something bubbling up here, feel free, be encouraged to say amen. Um, I know a lot of times it can be a little weird uh, sometimes to say that out loud amongst everyone else. But be encouraged to say amen because, one, the reason why we do it is because, one, you're agreeing with the Spirit, right? So being able to agree with the Spirit and what He is doing and what He is saying to you is a good thing. And, two, for people in the room who are not followers of Jesus... You can also encourage them and say, hey, what this guy said was actually good. I don't know about the rest of this stuff, but what he said just now is actually good. So feel free, be be encouraged, church, to say amen. And just to humor me for a little bit, and the church said, amen. There it is. I love it. All right, so let's pick up at Matthew 1, verse 18. So now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, we'll come back to that word later, to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child with, from the Holy Spirit. Now, just to kind of catch you up, Matthew says at this point, Mary has been told that she is going to give birth to a son. But, but this child won't be her fiancé Joseph's child. It will actually be from the Holy Spirit. And if that sounds weird to you it also sounded weird to them. Um, And just to make things a little more complicated, Mary was not even married to Joseph yet. It says here that Mary is only betrothed to Joseph. told you we would come back to that word. That's a weird word. It basically just means it's kind of like an engagement, uh, but it was legally binding. Um, So to break off a betrothal, it required a legal divorce, not some just parting of ways and an awkward conversation about who gets to keep the ring or not. So during the betrothal, The man and woman were legally married but couldn't consummate the marriage. Now, a lot of things happened during this betrothal, but the main thing that happens is that uh, the husband and the wife were observed for their purity. And in Mary's case, it very much looked like she wasn't pure, right? And even though we know she was, you know, people back in the day didn't really read the story because... The story didn't exist back in the day. So understanding (laughs) for them, they were definitely not that. So I tell you all that to say, imagine with me a scenario from Joseph's perspective, right? You're engaged uh, uh, to be married in this hyper-conservative culture. Your fiancé, whom you love, comes up to you during the engagement and says, Joseph, I need to have a conversation with you. (laughs) Uh, I need you to sit down for this. I'm pregnant. Cue Joseph's face, right? He's just like, what? Um, But you quickly, you know, calm down. You say, okay, by who? And she says, well, this is awkward again. I hope you're still sitting down. It's by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're Joseph, how do you think that's going to fly with you? To you, this is the worst playing of the God card in all of history, right? Like, this is the OG. Matter of fact, this is probably the very first playing of the God card ever. So now, you're not only upset and confused because of this horror situation, but you're also upset because apparently Mary couldn't come up with a better lie. (laughs) If you're Joseph, you're probably thinking, cool, 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 cool. So when can I meet this uh, Holy Spirit? I'd love to have a very small but intense chat with him. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, we'll come back to that word, and willing to put her, uh, and not, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So Joseph does what any dude during this day would have done. He makes plans to break off the betrothal. And the passage says Joseph resolved to divorce her quietly. Because if if they continued their engagement, anyone and everyone would believe that either one, Mary had been unfaithful to Joseph, right? Or two, that she and Joseph had been sneaking around each other. Either way, staying with Mary would have been a bad idea. It would have been him willingly embracing unnecessary shame and scorn and even outright hate from the people around them. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a righteous man. He was committed to following the law of divorcing an unfaithful spouse, but doing so in the most selfless and compassionate way possible, which is so beautiful. Well, that, that is until verse 20. Uh, but as he considered these things, as he pondered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. It's almost like he was reading his mind. Uh, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So God sends an angel in a dream to tell Joseph, Hey, I know what you're thinking, but I'm going to need you to not divorce Mary. And then he proceeds to tell him that she is pregnant via the Holy Spirit, which I'm sure he heard from somewhere. Who's to say, really? Who's to say but it was definitely Mary who told him. Um, Now, I want us to slow down here, slow down here a bit, because I don't want you to miss what is going on. At this point in the story, God appears to Joseph, right? He appears to Joseph, and, and who from all appearances is a respectable, upright, stand up kind of guy. And the Bible will say, like I said, that he is righteous, right? And not only does God introduce difficulty into Joseph's life in the form of an unexpected son, but then he sends him an angel to encourage him to walk directly into the difficulty by marrying Mary and raising Jesus as his own. In other words, God leads Joseph straight into difficulty, not out of it. Let me say that one more time for the people in the back. God leads Joseph straight into difficulty and not out of it. I hear people often say that uh, following Jesus is the best way to live, right? That it's the most uh, fulfilled life, that it's hashtag blessed, that it is uh, the best is yet to come. And and the truth of those statements, that that following Jesus is the best way to live, I, I think it depends entirely on how you define the word best, if what you mean by, following, uh, uh, by that is that following Jesus is the best because it's how we were intended to live all along, then hey, I'm all for it. I'm with you. Um, but if what you mean by best is that following Jesus will give you, as one author put it, your best life now, then I would have to disagree with you. If, if what you mean that following Jesus guarantees that life will just go well for you, that following Jesus will somehow secure material blessing or financial security or help you win friends and influence, you're in for an unpleasant surprise. Because the Bible does not teach that. The Bible does not teach that. I mean, our boy Joseph certainly would take issue with that, right? Because for him, in this story, Joseph's life gets worse and not better. And sometimes that doesn't get talked about enough. <coughs> Hear me say this, fam. Sometimes doing what God says makes life harder and not easier. That, that following Jesus brings with it not just gain, not just gain, there is gain, but it also brings loss. In fact, in this passage, we see two specific types of loss that Joseph experiences because of what... Uh, uh, because of how he does what God says to do. Number one is a loss of reputation. Loss of reputation. So first, Joseph obeying what God says to do through the angel ensures that for at least for the next few years or so, people will make fun of him as the guy who married that pregnant girl. And I don't mean, you know, some mean tweets or some mean Facebook messages or Snapchat or whatever. I'm talking about, like, way worse type stuff and in-person type stuff. To everyone watching this story unfold, Joseph was either a complete liar and was actually the one to get Mary pregnant, which, again, was not a good look back in the day, or he was a complete fool for marrying Mary who was already pregnant by someone else. Just think about the loss of reputation and, and more this would have been for him in a conservative culture like this one but a loss of reputation for doing what God says isn't just exclusive to Joseph scripture makes it very clear that anybody who decides to follow Jesus will experience it take a look with me at a few right now it says john 15:20 says if they persecuted me they will also persecute you mark 13 th- 13 says this, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 2 Timothy 3:12 says it like this, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So on a number of occasions the Bible says, "Hey, if you want to follow after Jesus, your reputation is going to be on the line. It's guaranteed. Difficulty will come, and not just in general, you know, from the brokenness of the world, that will happen, but it will come directly as a result of your decision to follow after Jesus. Now, I will say this, the type of adversity that we face in 21st century America is often a little different than what other followers of Jesus in the Bible may have experienced. See, for most of us, we we probably haven't experienced beatings or been thrown in jail because of believing in God, right? Right. Usually in our culture here in America, it's a little more subtle. It's a little more kind of under the table. It's more like a subtle ridicule when uh, you don't decide to get wasted with your friends on the weekends. It's a little snicker or a little slight uh, from people when you indicate, hey, you only plan to sleep with someone once you're married to them. And for many of us, it's, it's just enough of that subtle pressure to keep that whole faith thing to ourselves, right? It's just enough. To, to not bring up Jesus or the church in conversation so that we won't seem preachy to them or to make people feel uncomfortable, right? And hear me say, I get that. I totally get that. For me, I, I remember when I finally became a pastor and I was sitting at my desk uh, designing something. I also work at UT as a graphic designer. And so I was sitting at my desk designing something and my coworker stopped by and kind of mentioned, hey, man. I saw on Facebook you became a pastor. Um, And I nodded and smiled. I was like, yeah. And then I was also very keenly aware of how loud he was talking. And I was just like, oh, man, I really hope no one else heard that. Because if they do, then they probably won't talk to me ever again. (laughs) Um, And and, and in many ways, for me, uh, I felt like, oh, you know, people hold pastors up to this level, um, this high up level, and, and, and now uh, they won't want to talk to me about real stuff, if that makes any sense. Um, and so for me, it was just that subtle of enough pressure to kind of uh, 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 think about that. And see, the reality is that with every day that goes by, our culture becomes less and less okay with any expression of faith in the public square. Nobody just comes out and says it, right? Hey, don't be a follower of Jesus. No one says that. They just say, sure, you can follow after Jesus, just keep it to yourself. You, you know it's the separation between church and everyone else, they would say. Sure, what you believe about God and, and what you do on Sundays is none of my business, but hey, just don't let it affect how you do things here at work. Just let it, don't let it affect how you do things In the classroom, just don't let it affect how you do things with your coworkers. And hear me say, just because this kind of pressure is more subtle, it doesn't make it less real. If you are following Jesus, there will be moments when you feel like the odd one out. That will happen. When you get painted as a prude. When when people think you're judging them just because you're not participating in the same things that they're participating in. You will experience in some way a loss of reputation. And in those moments, I go ahead and warn you, you're going to be tempted to, to respond in one of two sinful ways. The first is by rejecting Jesus. Rejecting Jesus. For some, the pressure of being disapproved of is simply too much to handle. They would rather be liked by people than to be identified as a follower of Jesus. And so eventually they just walk away from Jesus altogether. But, to be honest, the more common response uh, to ridicule is actually reinventing Jesus. Especially here in the South. Uh, A lot of people are a little too nervous uh, just to kind of outright give up on Jesus, you know? They've got too much history, they've got too much knowledge, they've read Revelation. Um, So instead, here's, here's how... Here's how we do it. When when we talk about Jesus, instead of him being someone who who wants to save us from sin, uh, uh, instead of him being someone who wants to help us repent of sin, he just becomes some spiritual guide that wants to help us live some better life, a more fulfilled life. Instead uh, uh, Instead of Jesus being a guy who says certain things are right and wrong, he becomes a guy who's just really about loving people and not judging people. Instead of Jesus being a God who calls us to deny ourselves, to, to pick up our cross and to follow after him, he becomes a God who just wants us to not worry and be happy. In a dozen little ways, we, we just reinvent Jesus, modify him a little bit, you know, so that he's more palatable to us and to the people around us. But when we reinvent Jesus, it's not really Jesus we're following. It's ourselves. Mark Twain said it like this. He said, when, uh, when God created man in his own image, man being a gentleman returned the favor. I can't help but think of how many people, especially here in America, claim to worship God when really all they're doing is worshiping a modified version of themselves. And you know what? Here, here's kind of a good way uh, to find that out if you're doing this. It's kind of a litmus test. If you've, ever had, uh, if you've never had anyone look at you weird or you know, be a little awkward around you if they find out that you're a Christian or poke fun at you or anything like that, um, it, it's worth asking uh, whether you have reinvented Jesus into something that doesn't offend people. Now, Just because of where we're at culturally, I want to give this disclaimer. Um, Not everything that doesn't exclusively cater to Christians is persecution. So, for example, people disliking the guy who Yale preaches, right, at, at people in Market Square is not him being persecuted. He's just experiencing the natural consequences of being a jerk. Starbucks not putting Merry Christmas on their coffee cups is not persecution. That's a very normal, understandable business decision from a worldly perspective. People not wanting to hang out with you because you are very self righteous and judgmental towards them is also not persecution. (laughs) Not everything negative towards Christians is persecution, but some things are. And Joseph's obedience to God meant persecution, it meant a loss of reputation. And it also meant, number two, a loss of control. A loss of control. For Joseph, doing what God told him to do meant a complete loss of control over what he thought his life would be like. By saying yes to staying with Mary, he was yielding control over uh, what he saw his life, uh, uh, the way he saw his life was going to go. I mean, think about it. Joseph, a blue collar, working class guy, probably saw himself getting married, you know, living one of those like quiet lives on the Galilean hillside, you know, eventually having kids, eventually having a dog. You guys know the little house on the prairie, basically. Then, out of nowhere, his plans must change. Now, the woman that he's engaged to is already pregnant with a child. That isn't even his, and God's instructions mean he is going to have to be the center of ridicule and gossip in a conservative town for the foreseeable future. Can you imagine a more dramatic turn for this dude? Can you imagine how utterly out of control this dream would have left Joseph feeling? We even see this in uh, one of the details in the next passage. Let's go ahead and pick it up, verse 21. It says, She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So in the first century, uh, naming your child was a big deal. Naming your child was a very big deal. And it was a sign of your authority and control over your family. And it was the father's responsibility to actually name the child. So by the angel telling Joseph uh, uh, that, his, that your child uh, will be called jo- uh, Jesus, he is communicating to Joseph that even that control that you thought you had won't belong to you. It's another way of saying that his life will not play out the way he thought it would. Joseph would no longer get to decide if they had kids when they would have kids, who that kid would be, what or he, what he or she would do. And all of that was stripped away in an instant when the angel said, and you shall call his name Jesus. In my experience, one of the hardest things for people to accept when it comes to following Jesus is the loss of control that it entails. The fact that following Jesus means that, that your life may not go the way you thought it would. The the reality that that now God ultimately gets to name what's next in your lives rather than us can be a little unnerving. And if that doesn't sound familiar to you, it, it might be because we love to try to convince ourselves that following Jesus actually doesn't work that way. Some people are under the impression that Jesus or Christianity is something that we can just add to our lives, People will say, oh, like, I feel like I have everything. What I'm missing now is something spiritual. I really would love to just add Jesus to my life, right? And I'll be set. I'll be good to go. But here's the thing. I think if we're completely honest with with ourselves, that's what we really want. We want a controllable God, a God who can just add to our already fulfilled lives, who can who we can kind of co-opt with uh, to help us to get what we really want. But if the story of Joseph could speak to that, it says something very different. There was no bargaining in this story, right? He did not get to say, sure, God, I'll still marry this girl and raise this kid as long as I get to name the kid. And as long as I get to tell him what to do and tell him where to go and all of that stuff. That's, that's not the deal that Joseph was offered, right? Jesus, the, the real Jesus, is not someone that you can just add to your life. In fact, he turns your life on its head. And here's the crazy thing even knowing all of that, even knowing that he would have a loss of reputation, a loss of control, Joseph chooses to go through with it. Let's check out verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, just again, just speaking from a purely logical standpoint, this is crazy. Here's a man who is permitted or even encouraged to divorce his wife when when he found out that she was pregnant with a child. That man, upon hearing from an angel in a dream, decides to instead embrace a loss of reputation, a loss of control over his life, and marry this woman anyway, and raise this kid as if he is his own. That's that's insane, in case y'all were wondering. People back in the day for sure did not do stuff like that. And yet, throughout the history of the world, Followers of Jesus have been doing exactly just that.
1: They've endured the loss
0: of reputation, the loss of popularity, uh, given up control over their lives. They've uprooted their lives and moved to new locations. They've faced ridicule. They've faced persecution, even death, all because they want to follow after Jesus. Let me give you a few examples. First, uh, let's start off with uh, one we uh, remember during this time of year, St. Nicholas, a.k.a. St. Nick a.k.a. Santa Claus, Uh, he was a follower of Jesus, a bishop in the third century. His parents died when he was a teenager, um, and and they left him a lot of money, and he was guided by Jesus' instructions in the Gospels to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. Best we can tell, he kept almost none of his inheritance, but instead used it all to care for children and the poor. Then, under a Roman emperor who persecuted Christians, St. Nick was actually thrown in prison because of his obedience to Jesus. St. Nick lost a lot of things, and all as a result of what God told him to do. In in another story, a husband and wife named Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, some of y'all may know this story, lived among Indian tribes as missionaries. One day Jim went into a nearby tribe to tell them about Jesus and he was killed almost immediately. Shortly after, Elizabeth decided to learn the language of that same tribe that murdered her husband. Yeah, that murdered her husband and brought her and her daughter there so that they could live among them and tell them about Jesus. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot lost a lot of things. All as a result of them doing what God told them to do. And I can sit here and tell you story after story after story after story of followers of Jesus that have been willing to lose whatever they needed to lose to follow after him. Now, when we hear stories like that, we could just assume that those people are crazy, right? We can just kind of assume that. that. That they have some type of weird desire to make their lives difficult when it, uh, when it doesn't have to be. And that could be the case. That could be the case, or we could just, or we could assume that they also maybe have discovered something that many people haven't. If we see in other people a joyful desire that we see in almost no one else, it's worth asking uh, um, that hey, maybe they figured out something other people haven't yet. Let me say it this way: um, Let's say that you uh, currently own a house. That is $150,000. That's 150000 dollars thats one hundred and fifty k. And then imagine someone walking up to your doorstep, and they're like, hey, my name is so-and-so. I want to give you a million dollars for everything. I want the house. I want the land. I want the dog. I want all the stuff that's in the house, all of that stuff. Now, ex- as excited as you might be and confused and then excited again, and then confused, wouldn't you be at least a little bit skeptical, right? Like, for someone to just walk up to you and say, hey, like, I want to give you a meal for, your, for everything. Like, wouldn't you just be like, hmm, why? Why do you want to do this? Um, at least for me, I know I would. I would do that. And then maybe I would sell it. Um, so let, let me ask you this, though. If throughout history we see generation after generation after generation of followers of Jesus say that, hey, it is worth it to me to lose all things, to lose everything to be able to follow after Jesus, shouldn't we assume that maybe, just maybe, they've discovered something that makes it worthwhile? And on the flip side, if we see in ourselves no desire to lose our reputation... No desire to to lose control over our lives. No desire to to yield our lives to Jesus at all. Would it not be reasonable to assume that maybe, just maybe, we haven't found what they have found? Jesus says it this way. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all that he had And bought that field. Jesus says that's exactly the type of response the gospel elicits. See, my fear is that we would hear stories like that of St. Nick and like that of the Elliots and go, man, that's so cool. That's so, so cool. While at the same time, think, oh, but I really hope I don't have to make a choice like that. But here's the thing here's the thing, fam. You're faced with that choice. Every day. Sure, it may not look as severe as those, but it's the same choice. You're going to face the choice of either joining in on the office gossip at work or not joining in on it. And then them looking at you weird because of that. You're going to face the choice of whether or not to sleep with the person you're dating with or deciding not to and looking a little old-fashioned or behind the times because of it. You're, you're going to face the choice of trying to uh, keep your kid from ever facing any type of difficulty or, uh, um, or adversion ever. Or giving them a front row seat to the not so glamorous life of being a mom and a dad who follow after Jesus. See, it's, it's the same choice even though it may appear a little differently. So the question is, is that is the treasure in the field worth losing whatever it takes to gain it? Is it worth it? Following Jesus will include loss, and you will have to decide if that loss is worth it to you personally or not. That's what the decision to follow Jesus looks like, and that's the decision that Joseph made. But here's the part um, that you cannot absolutely miss, and Ben, actually you can Come up on stage. Um, Here's the part that you can't miss. For all that Joseph lost, for everything that he lost, he gained Jesus. Though he lost nearly everything, he gained God himself. In fact, it tells us that uh, that's literally what the name Emmanuel means, right? God with us. In his loss of reputation, in his loss of control, God was with Joseph. Joseph. And that's an incredible trade. To trade human approval for the very presence of God. To trade our short-sighted plans for our life, for God's perfect plans for our life. This is the same idea that uh, Paul tries to get across in Philippians 3. It says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, somebody say all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In other words, when, when Paul considers what it means practically to know Jesus himself, he considers anything that he loses completely worth it. A little ridicule from people at work, nothing. A little social exclusion from time to time, who cares? A little awkward uh, conversation when you're, you, know, you bring up Jesus or the church or whatever, it doesn't matter. Paul says, whatever I have to lose in that moment to gain Jesus, I'm all in. It's worth it. Now, <clears throat> maybe to you, that sounds very unachievable. Totally get that. Uh, like you hear that and go, man, that sounds awesome, but I am nowhere close to thinking that way. Well, let's check out what Paul says later in verse 12. It says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus made me his own. So Paul says, hey, hey, don't get it twisted, fam. I'm, I'm not perfect in this. I, don't think this. I don't think this way nearly enough, as much as I would want to. But here's what I do. Here's what I do. I press on to make it my own. Because Jesus has made me his own. In other words, because I know for a fact that Jesus suffered the loss of all things for me, I want to fight for the willingness to do the same. Not out of guilt, not out of guilt not out of some sort of like martyr complex or anything like that, but out of love, out of a natural response. As a response to what Jesus did for him. Hebrews 12 says it like this, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus lovingly endured loss for us. Now we get to follow after him and do him the same. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you so much for um, your love for us. For how you have worked in and through us. Lord, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters in the room here that no matter what, that for them that you are worth it. Whether it's a loss of control, whether it's a loss of reputation, whatever the case may be, um, Lord, I pray that you would give them strength, that you would encourage them in those moments to continue to follow after you, to, to not feel the urge to either reinvent you or to do away with you altogether. Will you do that, Lord? Will you encourage them in those moments? Will you be with them in those moments, Lord? Yeah, Lord, um, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your love. In your name I pray, amen.